ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Well, fast fails come a bit of a catch cry at work, hasn't it? You can't really come up with new discoveries or new contributions or real advances in any realm without being willing to fail. But what about that moment when something does fail at work? It doesn't actually feel good. In fact, if the earth could open up and swallow you whole, well, that would be a good outcome. So how can you be willing to fail even when it feels, well, yuck? At work, if you're not engaging in smart experiments and some, you know, with some regularity, you're at risk of obsolescence, right? You're, you're at risk of stagnation. So it's not an option to just never take risks, but it is tempting to never take risks. Hello, I'm Lisa Leong, and in this episode of This Working Life, I'm sitting down with Amy Edmondson to understand the difference between mistakes and fails and how we can fail in the right way. She's a professor of leadership and management at the Harvard Business School, and her new book is called Right Kind of Wrong. So, Amy, you are absolutely famous for your psychological safety research, and thank you for it. Uh, Yet there was quite a hairy moment for you in 1993. You had a hypothesis about how well-run teams correlate to what you thought were error rates. What was your hypothesis and what happened? Well, this was a study of medical errors, and my simple hypothesis was that better teams, better run, higher quality relationships, better coordination, would have lower error rates, lower rates of adverse drug events. Sounds true. (laughs) Right, sounds true, right? It sounds almost obvious. And there were related studies in aviation and cockpit crews that, that showed just that. And when I got the data, my team survey data, and correlate it with the externally collected by trained medical investigators error data, I had the good news, a significant correlation, and then suddenly saw the bad news, which was that the correlation was in the wrong direction. The data were suggesting that better teams, better run teams had higher error rates, not lower. What did you feel like you wanted to do in that moment, Amy? Somewhere between drop out of graduate school, fall through a hole in the earth, or just give up altogether on my hopes of becoming a researcher. I mean, it was incredibly distressing, I guess. You know, and in retrospect, I shouldn't have been so emotionally distressed, but I was a, a new researcher and I just couldn't understand it. Of course, my first, my first thought was I've done something wrong. I've entered the data incorrectly or, or, you know, something systematic that is leading to this. I checked for all that. So that wasn't it. Um, and then I think my second thought was just, oh, like I, maybe I just can't do this. Like for some unknown reason, I just am not good at this. But ultimately, of course, the third thought, which took a little while to, to arrive at was, wait a minute, maybe they are not making more mistakes in those well-run, well-coordinating teams. Maybe they are more able and willing to report the errors that happen. And that started to seem quite plausible to me. And this was Amy's light bulb moment, one that informed the course of her career, really. I wanted to get back into the field and assess, were there differences in, in what I was thinking of as interpersonal climate that would lead people to feel more or less able to speak up honestly about error. 
But I couldn't go back there and look at that myself because I was very biased toward finding such a thing. And so fortunately, Richard Hackman loaned me his research assistant, whose name was Andy Malinsky, who today is a famous uh, researcher in his own right and a professor at Brandeis. And Andy was able to go from unit to unit with no knowledge of what I was thinking. And just his, his simple question was, you know, what's it like to work here? And everybody knew there was a big study of error. So that was a topic that did come up. What Andy found was indeed the climates, the working environments in these teams were wildly different ranging from highly open and honest. People would talk about how things could go wrong at any moment, so we have to speak up quickly. And other units where people said things like, if you make a mistake around here, it gets held against you. Or you don't want to you know, tell the nurse manager if something went wrong because you get treated like a two-year-old or you get put on trial. Very evocative language that to me was exactly the kind of thing I was thinking might be present, the differences that might be present. So I asked him if he could rank order the teams from most open to sort of most, his word, authoritarian. And he said he could, and he provided qualitative data to justify his ranking. So this qualitative research could predict almost perfectly which teams would have higher error rates or would at least be talking about their error rates. It wasn't conclusive, but it was certainly very powerful evidence that there may be differences in interpersonal climate and that they may affect the error data. And then you went deeper on this and you created this concept of psychological safety. So tell us about how you then went on to create this new area, really, of research. Right. So I, I really believe this was an idea that had legs. And there was no way to prove for sure that these interpersonal climate differences were predictive of learning behaviors and performance because this was a sort of after the fact interpretation of the data. So what I thought was my next research study would be in a very different context. And I went and studied a, a manufacturing organization in, in the U.S. Midwest. And I got access to teams of all kinds, management teams, sales teams, new product development teams, production teams. And I developed a measure of this interpersonal climate factor. And I was in that study able to show predictively that it, it was associated with learning behaviors in teams, with performance in teams, with both subjectively assessed performance and externally assessed performance of the teams. And so it was Amazing. And it was only later that I named this construct, which I had, it had a seven item measure. I was thinking of it as differences in interpersonal climate. And then I was talking with colleagues who knew the historic literature and organizational behavior who said, really, this is, um, I think what you're talking about is akin to psychological safety. So I called it team psychological safety because I did not want it to be thought of as an individual difference, because it wasn't. It was something that was an emergent property of the groups. But over the years, as the research has gained a lot of you know, attention and traction, people just call it psychological safety. In the work that is done in organisations and the changes that we have now in our codes as well for psychosocial hazards at work, the work that you've done is incredibly profound and has really changed the discourse of our organisations, our teams at work. So I want to really face into this because there was that pivot moment. If we go back to 1993, when you were looking at that data and thinking, oh, I'm not 
cut out for this. I mean, if you had given up, if you had just left it at the fail, we wouldn't have this. So this is a really important point. So now you're looking back and you're going, ah, how do we deal with failure? So let's go deeper on this then. Let's look at failure. What are some of the reflections, the things that you've found in looking at that moment again? I, I, that's just so well put, Lisa. I love your question and your observation because you're right. If I had given up, we, we wouldn't be having this conversation, of course, but as you say, a lot of work has been done by other researchers and by practitioners and leaders around the world in trying to make the workplace more psychologically safe, which to me means more learning oriented, more willing to take risks, more more willing to be honest and open in hierarchies. Now, I think that's a good thing, right? I, th- I think that's a that is adding value to the world. But you're right to make that connection because the broader issue here is all of us, everyone needs to be more comfortable with failures because every big discovery or every big contribution to research or to other fields requires failures along the way, right? You can't really come up with new discoveries or new contributions or real advances in any realm without being willing to fail. Amy, in your book, you set out three types of failure. So intelligent failures, they're the ones that we've been exploring where you're running an experiment and finding the boundaries of your hypothesis. Right. Then there are complex failures. These are monster failures that can have disastrous outcomes. They are usually preceded by red flags that we either miss or ignore. Could be like a cyber attack, for example. Yeah. And then you have a category of basic failures. These are basic errors or mistakes that can be avoided. Mm-hmm. So you, Amy, draw a distinction between a failure mm-hmm. and a mistake. This is probably a losing battle, but I'll keep fighting it anyway. So a mistake only can exist if there is existing knowledge about how to do it right. And you don't, for whatever reason, you either don't use or don't follow or make a deviation from the existing knowledge that's unintended. That's a mistake. Now, many mistakes lead to failures, but doesn't make them the same thing. And even more important, many failures are not the result of a mistake. So I agree. Surgeons should not be advocating mistakes in the operating room. And early surgeons, let's say in cardiac surgery, right? The, the, the surgeons who decided that open heart surgery might, an impossible dream, might in fact be possible, had to be willing to experience failures in that new territory. They had to find a way to limit the size and scope of those failures, but there would be no way to just magically make a brand new advance in surgical procedure possible without that willingness to experiment in new territory. And just so our, our listeners are okay with this, the way that the way that's done, of course, is that you operate only on patients who otherwise have absolutely no chance of survival, right? They have a, let's say, a defect in their heart that is fatal. And so you hope that you may be able to get in there and repair it. But if no one's ever cut open a beating heart before and done that, you have to accept the possibility that you may fail. And that is exactly what happened, you know, and again, with as make, keeping the failures as small as possible by only operating people who had no other recourse you experience these small, but I will argue intelligent failures along the way to ultimately groundbreaking 
life-changing successes. So then, Amy, what is a healthy failure culture? In a healthy failure culture, we are alert and vigilant enough to prevent basic failures. And we are alert and vigilant enough to catch and correct the early signs of complex failures and often prevent them as well. And we are willing to take smart risks and do it out in the open, you know, with our colleagues so that we can drive innovation and future success. So that's what a healthy failure culture looks like. And how do we do that? Now, to do that, I believe we need self-awareness and situation awareness and ultimately system awareness. And Amy, you call these the three competencies. So let's start with self-awareness and the story of Ray Dalio. So self-awareness is about recognizing you know some of our human fallibility the biases the confirmation bias for instance and but we are hardwired to miss things that are different from our prior beliefs for example the story of ray dalio back in 1982 is a great one to illustrate this point so so dalio was 7 years out of harvard business school he had been he had started a company called bridgewater associates very famous and he'd done well so well, in fact, that he was often called upon to speak to national business television programs and so on. And people were particularly interested in his opinions on the economy and the stock market. And he had special pride in his ability to predict long-term trends. Come 1982, Dalio is convinced because of a number of economic indicators that he paid close attention to that the U.S. economy was headed for a crisis. Now, our listeners may or may not remember that in around 1982, the U.S. economy started a growth period that was one of the longest and most enduring in history, right? So, so Dahlia was dead wrong. He says, and I almost quote, he says, in retrospect, that failure was the best thing that ever happened to me. It taught me to balance my aggressiveness with some humility, to shift from I know I'm right too. Simple shift. I wonder why I'm right. Right? Which is a very powerful but subtle shift. I know I'm right, which many of us have that feeling often. I know I'm right. I see reality. Others are missing something. To I wonder why I'm right. Just that little nudge of curiosity. And to me, the essence of self-awareness is can we notice ourselves in a state of knowing and help ourselves shift to a state of curiosity and learning. That's it, right? Because if we can be more curious, we can do things more mindfully, we can ask more questions, we can experiment more often. Instead of just resting on our knowledge laurels, we get a sense that we want to just keep developing our knowledge through learning. And this is quite tough, actually, because as you point out, it can be ego-threatening. It's very ego-threatening. It's ego-threatening to be wrong, but we can. It is possible to retrain ourselves to kind of connect being wrong with a learning opportunity. I mean, not just a thing to say, but literally, wow, I just got smarter. I just got, you know, I just gained more value because I learned something new. 
Now, the second competency, situation awareness, you shared the incredible beeping squares electric maze <laughs> experiment. Do you want to try and describe it? Because I just think yeah. that I would have completely fallen in this trap. <laughs> oh, so would I, right? We all we, we all do, especially high performers, right? Because high performers want to be right. So let me see if I can describe it quickly. This is a, a an exercise, a team exercise. It's a nine foot by six foot grid. And some of those squares have a little sensor in them that beeps loudly when you step on it. And others of them are very quiet. They have nothing in them. So the team exercise is to find the path of contiguous non-beeping squares through the maze. And what happens is, and it's time limited, you know, it's a real hurry. What happens is people get to the front line, meaning the part of the maze that we don't yet know the answer to, and they hesitate Right? They hesitate for extraordinary amounts of time, you know, 10 seconds, 15 seconds. They really don't want to step. Right? But of course, the only way to get the data about which squares beep and which don't is to step. And so when I debrief, so then they often fail, right? They don't manage to find and get the path done and get the whole team through. So then in the debrief, I say, well, what were you thinking every time you're on a new row, you know, and it's that pioneering territory? And they would say, I didn't want to make a mistake or I didn't want to let the team down. Now, they're wrong because it's not a mistake to step on an unknown square in new territory that nobody could know by looking or any other form of homework, whether or not it beeped, is not a mistake. It's a failure, yes, but it's an intelligent one and it's not a mistake. We don't do a good job naturally of sizing up the context. And in a sense, they were treating the context as high stakes, right? Like if I step on a square and it beeps, it will be awful. But no, if you step on a square and it beeps, it's data, it's new knowledge, it's valuable. And, and so the competency here is quickly size up a context. What are the stakes, right? Can anyone get really hurt? Could we lose a lot of money? You know, will our reputation be blown if things go south? And if it's, you know, the stakes are low and it's, you know, it's new territory and there's really no other way to make progress other than by experimenting, then do it fast, do it playfully and have fun. And in fact, um, the fastest people would just be putting their feet everywhere, wouldn't they? And just figure out, okay, where are the beeps and yes, where's the exactly, thing? Exactly. Beautiful. And then keep track and then keep track. And I, I do the, the exercise was developed many, many years ago and not by me. And I, I use it. I used it well before I wrote this book, but I use it to show how the psychological and social challenges of innovation can be much more acute than you'd think, right? To help to help business leaders understand that when they're asking for innovation, they need to do something about the context and the culture to make sure people know that beeps going forward are celebrated. And then Amy, if I wanted to increase my contribution to a healthy failure culture, what would I be doing, Amy? First of all, you would be getting out there and normalizing fallibility, right? The fact is each and every one of us is a fallible human being by definition, and we are working in fallible organizations. That's a given. We got to talk about it more, not to just rest and stop striving, but to be aware of the ever-present potential for either things to go wrong or opportunities to 
to improve. So first and foremost, make it easy for people to speak up because failure is not stigmatized. Uncertainty and fallibility are understood as facts of life. And then then number two, um, promote innovation by supporting people in experiments, in smart experiments, giving them the resources, giving them the encouragement, giving them the time to try new things that may not work as needed, right, in order to ultimately develop innovative new products and services. Another way to talk about intelligent failure, and I think this is important for building a healthy failure culture, is that we're really, we're really talking about smart experiments, right? Smart experiments are driven by a goal in new territory where you've done your homework, so you have a hypothesis, and the experiment is no bigger than it needs to be to get the new knowledge. It's so I think most people can buy into the need to do that, whether in your personal life or at work, which is what we're most interested in here. But at work, if you're not engaging in smart experiments, you know, with some regularity, you're at risk of obsolescence, right? You're, you're at risk of stagnation. So it's not an option to just never take risks, but it is tempting to never take risks. And then, I mean, your work sort of often focuses at the organisational level. So have you seen a culture move from one of lack of psychological safety in a way to moving towards psychological safety and a healthy failure culture? Well, one that comes to mind is um, a Midwestern children's hospital in the United States, Minnesota Children's, where they went from an organization, this is years ago, but they shifted from an organization with great leadership effort um, and participation at all levels that was very, um, it was one where, I guess it's one that you could say was characterized by blame and shame and finger pointing. And the reality is in a modern tertiary care system that things will go wrong, where we started this conversation what really matters is how quickly people notice and speak up about the things that go wrong so that we can prevent further harm. So they literally, you know, over time shifted that culture from one of blame and shame and finger pointing to one of, of reporting and speaking up and catching and correcting and learning as much as humanly possible from the things that did go wrong. Was there a lever in particular that you think unlocked them as a culture? Well, as is usually the case with effective culture change journeys, it's multiple. There isn't one big lever that you stand on and move the world. It's, mm. it's a handful of supportive factors to create a system for change. And in this system for change, probably the first, uh, one of the most striking ones was something called blameless reporting, where the hospital put in place an explicit policy that said no one will ever be blamed for reporting, right? And that doesn't mean if we, you know, do our analysis and we find that someone, you know, came to work impaired or drunk or some, you know, that that wouldn't be blamed, that would be blamed. But the report, the act of reporting would never be blamed. So that was one. They also did a lot of education on systems thinking and helping people realize that the, the complex interdependent nature of care 
meant that things would go wrong. I mean, like it or not, things would go wrong. So they kept educating people on that perspective. They put in place um, formal after action reviews to understand, you know, to really learn as much as possible from things that went wrong. They um, created safety action teams to sort of review hazards prospectively to, to try to remove things that could lead to problems. They created a good catch log to really keep track of when someone caught something before harm happened to celebrate and also learn from uh, those good catches and a handful of other things. So you can see how all of these things are mutually reinforcing. It's not a list. It's a kind of set that that helps shape thinking and behaviors in, in, in subtle but important ways. Thank you so much, Amy. Thank you, Lisa. Harvard Professor of Leadership and Management, Amy Edmondson. I'm Lisa Leong. Thanks for listening to This Working Life. It's produced by Zoe Ferguson and mixed by Matthew Crawford. This episode was produced on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Until next time, work it, baby. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.